Hey, buddy. Hey, what's up? <laughs> you know, ghosts. We're in the Franklin Hall uh, podcast bay, and in front of us, we have a printed Ouija board on legal size paper to improvise the uh, other thing. What do you call it? It's okay. Plank? The plank. Yeah. Yes. I am using is this clear little envelope thingy that my free uh, glasses lens wife came in. Oh, I have one of those too. Um, yeah, we're going to... Is this a seance that we're doing? I thought a seance was like you had to like have a, a medium with you. No. Okay, good. So we're, we're communicating. <laughs> we're going to communicate with the dead. Yes. That's what's going to happen. Okay. And to do this, I googled Ouija board wikihow, and these the four things that came up were how to create a Ouija board, how to use a Ouija board, how to use the Ouija board safely, important, and how to behave during a Ouija board session. <laughs> I don't know. Is this your first time using a Ouija board? No, it's Ooh, not. <laughs> okay, this is my first time using a Ouija oh, board. Oh, okay, cool, uh, cool. I was raised Catholic, and one time... In the church, the other church in my town, they found a Ouija board in the closet, and it was a whole thing. Will you guide me? Yes. Okay. I will guide you. Okay. Okay. So the first thing to do is each person put their fingers on. Wait, does it start somewhere? Um, we're going to put our fingers on first. Okay. Okay. And we're going to basically do counterclockwise and circle it. Okay. Three times. One. Two, three, and now we're gonna go over to hello. And now, if you want to ask any questions, you can ask them. Now. Okay, I don't know how many dead people there would be associated with Franklin <laughs> Hall. It's an old building. Um, can I? Can I just? You can just even say, "Is there anyone here?" If you want to. Hello. Is there anyone here? So, did you go to M earlier? Mm-hmm. Meh. Maz. Or was it me? Oh, was it? It was maybe. No? No. Maybe. It's happening. Dude. Jesus Christ, this is wishy-washy. It's not, it's not going in any straight lines. Mm, no, it usually doesn't, though. God it. Okay. So, maybe. So maybe that was a name, but we just don't know what it is. Like, maybe Bluth? Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. Or Maz. Or Ma- Maybelline. Maybe it's Maybelline. Ma- 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 Mabel. Uh, oh, that could have definitely been it. We did go to all those places. Oh, God. All right. So then we can ask another question. Mabel. So, um, are you happy here? <laughs> okay. No. Do you want to keep going? I do want to stop. From blue. Mm. <laughs> From uh, again, live, live. What is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is. This is. This is American Student Radio. Real chill, real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. Happy Halloween! I'm Catherine Delarosa, and this is American Student Radio's Spooky Halloween Special. I just want to say that after I used that Ouija board, my one terabyte external hard drive died, and my life was ruined. I don't think it's because of Maybell the Ghost. I think it was definitely God smiting me.
Um, so Ayu is actually lousy with ghosts, not just Mabel. Carter Barrett's here to take us on a campus ghost tour. Hey, welcome to the first stop on the IU Ghost Tour. Prepare for some bone-chilling stories and whatever you do, don't take out your headphones. So if you're standing in the right spot, you should be looking at what is now the IU Career Development Center off North Jordan Avenue. It's a red brick building with a wheelchair access to the door facing Jordan. To your back should be the IU Health Center. Okay, don't be shy. Go up to the front door. Take a step inside. Someone will probably ask you what you're doing. Just say you're on this tour. They'll know what you're talking about. Take a look around. Notice the pamphlets and posters. That's the beginning of this horror story. Finding a career. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, have a seat in one of the chairs. It doesn't matter. To be honest, they're all equally uncomfortable. Tragedy is a funny thing. I don't know if it's the kind of thing that can follow a place around, but for this house, it certainly seems that way. It has three generations of stories, a madman, a doctor, and a fraternity brother. Here's the first. If you couldn't tell from the outside, this hasn't always been the Career Development Center. It was actually a private residence, in the early 1900s, the home's original owner built the house. Imagine this place, brand new. And imagine it not as a stark office building, but as a home. A family sitting at the fireplace, walls lined with bookshelves, a piano nestled in the corner. There's not a lot of information about this man, but here's what we do know. Soon after he built the home, he fell into what people described as fits of madness. The expenses on the home piled up, and he couldn't keep up with them. Crippled with debt and insanity, one night he descended the stairs into the basement. And killed himself. Before we get into the second part of this story, stand up. Walk towards the little help booth you see first walking in. Then continue and walk towards the water fountains. Once you pass by those, take a left and you should see a large staircase that wraps around. Notice it seems older than everything else. Reach out and feel the cold metal handrail. If you want to sit on the bottom step, go ahead. After the first owner killed himself in the basement, a doctor bought the home right before World War II. It was his home, but also his office. Sick people would visit him here. You know, normal doctor stuff. But in the late hours of the night, when the streets were all but empty, scared young women would knock on the door. Come in, come in. Hurry before anyone sees you. Follow me. The doctor and the young woman would descend the stairs into the basement. It was here, in the dark, cold basement, the doctor performed illegal abortions. Having children out of wedlock is socially unacceptable. I was just trying to help. 
He did this for years, even though it was against the law. He knew he had to cover his tracks. The doctor would toss any remains into the medical waste incinerator in the basement. Reach out and brush your hand along the white plaster wall. Then he took the ashes and buried them in the floorboards and walls. These walls. One late night, the routine procedure went terribly wrong. Oh God, no. No, 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 no. A 17-year-old woman bled to death in the doctor's home. This wasn't supposed to happen. He moved quickly, burning her body and burying the ashes at the bottom of the staircase, right where you're standing. The police arrested the doctor for the girl's murder. When he returned home on bail, he walked to the top of the spiral staircase, the one you're looking at. He tied a noose and hung himself. Maybe it was his reputation or the guilt that did it. Others say he went mad from the sound of babies crying in the night. The next generation of the building was as Phi Kappa Tau fraternity in the early 1970s. Although no amount of partying or recklessness can leave the home's dark history behind. So it's the 70s and Danny Jackson, a young member of the fraternity, arrived at the house to start the new semester. Look behind you. He probably walked through that door. When he got home, he realized he was the first person back. While he was unpacking, he heard footsteps from the second floor. Hello? Who's there? Hello? Who's there? Hello? Is anybody there? Hey guys, is anybody there? Hello? Take a few steps up onto the spiral staircase. You're standing right where Danny was. It was then he felt an icy cold hand on his shoulder. Horrified, he fell into convulsions until other members of the fraternity found him. They took him to the hospital and he was okay, but never returned back to the house. So while the fraternity occupied the house, all sorts of strange happenings were reported. Faucets turning on and off, phones dialing themselves, records spinning slowly on turntables, invisible babies crying. When IU turned the house into the Career Development Center, reports of these spooky happenings ceased. History finally laid at rest. But you never know what could be right behind you. Okay, so time to get to the next stop on the IU Haunts tour. Leave the Career Development Center and walk across the street towards the library. Thank you to Carter for that tour. Here's another ghost story not very far from here from the Indiana Memorial Union. Rick Brewer went on a ghost trip to the haunted IMU Student Activities Tower. I'd say most college campuses have a fair share of ghost stories, but um, what I've noticed about IU is that it seems to have maybe more than some other campuses. And what I will say about IU is it has some particularly grisly, like kind of 
uh, disturbing legends about it. This is Shannon Larson. And I'm a PhD student in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology. Shannon is writing her dissertation on supernatural experiences and abandoned psychiatric institutions. But when she first arrived in Bloomington, she was a tour guide for IU's annual Ghost Walk, a tour of the most haunted places on campus, run by the Folklore and Ethnomusicology Association. I first heard of these spooky legends while working in the university archives as a student assistant. People would request to see the archive collection of the papers from the Ghost Walk. I ended up taking a look at it myself to only find hundreds of documents and newspaper clippings detailing ghost stories and hauntings at IU, some dating as far back as 1911. It was shocking. But there was this one story in particular that caught my eye, a story about suicide in the seven-story tower in the Indiana Memorial Union, and what is now referred to as the Student Activities Tower. And so when it was part of the hotel, um, it said that a young woman uh, committed suicide. She found a way out of one of the upper uh, windows of that tower and jumped years later. <laughs> I know it sounds silly, but a dog also jumped out of that tower and supposedly died in the same spot. After looking through hundreds of documents in the university archives, I was unable to find a name, date, or any documentation confirming that a woman and a dog jumped out of the IMU tower. Nevertheless, this legend continues. People believe that this tower is now haunted by the spirits of, of that woman and, and the dog. And the most common thing that's said about the tower is that the elevator will mysteriously stop on floor four, which um, people say that's where the suicide victims would have jumped from. But so the, the fourth floor often, the elevator will mysteriously stop open for no one and then continue on its way. And people have also, there was a strange experience that us a janitor had there that someone, he, he actually took the time to like write to the folklore department and tell us about his experience. Which is true. A man named Robert Dubinsky, not sure if he was a janitor, emailed the folklore department. Dated October 17, 2003, his email details the haunting experience he had one summer night while doing a routine lockup of the tower. He called his story the bare-bones truth. Mr. Dubinsky, quote, heard the most mysterious mumbled Arabic chant. It startled me very much, and my mind began to race with all the tales surrounding the fifth floor, end quote. As Mr. Dubinsky became increasingly frightened, he went to make sure the rest of the doors in the tower were locked, and then began to hear the chant coming through his radio attached to his hip. He ran down the stairs to escape, and saw his reflection in the window along with a, quote, dark shadow of a man, end quote, chasing behind him. Once I heard Mr. Dubinsky's story, I knew I needed to learn more about this tower. Have people claimed to experience hauntings like this recently? And the elevator, does it mysteriously stop on the fourth floor? So my name is Matt Hamilton. I am a building manager here at the Indiana Memorial Union. My responsibilities basically are to make sure um, the doors that need to be locked up are locked up. I got in touch with Matt to give me a behind-the-scenes tour of the IMU and to hear if he's had any supernatural experiences in the tower since he started working there a little over a year ago. I haven't really experienced much on the fourth floor. It's been pretty bland. 
The third floor, however, I I have some weird happenings. So, so often there's this door that I'm, I'm required to shut. It's a machine room that's just found open, and there there really is nobody in, that I can think of, I guess, within the building who would have access to that. And there's no reason for anybody to have been in there. And I, I know, you know, once it's locked, uh, or once I lock it up, you know, it's, it's, good. it's locked for good. Matt also told me a story about a time when he had to catch a bat when it flew into the Union. Once he released the bat, a few seconds later, a hawk snatched it. But that wasn't the third floor of the Biddle Hotel, not in the tower. Eventually, Matt took me to the haunted fourth floor, where I could take a closer look at the rooms and windows and see if such a suicide would have been possible. As we're looking in the fourth floor here where this alleged suicide happened, yeah. when you're walking in here, you can just kind of tell that it used to be a dorm slash hotel at one point. It's kind of it's kind of eerie because it's sort of been repurposed and renovated. We can check out what these sort of rooms look like too. Okay. Habitat is one of the better rooms. It was obvious these rooms used to be part of a hotel as they still contained bathtubs and sinks. So very easily someone could have opened this up, climbed out, and <laughs> jumped. I mean, it's it wouldn't have been difficult at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, these windows are secured, but I'm sure there were times when they were not and people could just access it whenever they wanted. I just get this feeling that I know people have slept here. And 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 it's that's not just from knowing that people actually have slept here. I feel like when I first came here, I just got that feeling. It's like it, just smelling it a little bit, just kind of it it throws me off. I really I really don't like this tower much at all. So, it's possible that a woman and a dog could have jumped out of the windows on the fourth floor. It was once part of the hotel and the windows and rooms checked out. But what about the elevator? Does it randomly stop on the fourth floor? There was only one way to find out. When I rode the tower elevator, I went around midnight because that's when you're supposed to go, right? And I just kept going up and down. And up and down. I was expecting to hear the sounds of a woman crying and the bark of a dog or perhaps the Arabic chants, but nothing happened. The temperature never dropped below freezing, I didn't hear any sounds out of the ordinary, and the elevator always went to the floors I selected. It always seems like when we try and force an experience like this, it never works out. But maybe the point isn't whether these folktales really did happen, or if the elevator myth is just that, a myth. Again, Shannon Larson. To a folklorist, it does not matter whether or not ghosts are real. We don't care. <laughs> we find cultural value. We find historical value in these story in these narratives. Um, often, legends, um, supernatural narratives like this, they will reflect uh, everyday fears and anxieties. They will reflect reflect a desire to um, kind of test the boundaries of the known world. So legends and folklore in general, they offer people a way uh, to kind of communicate about things that are um, deeply embedded fears, anxieties, contemporary issues that need to be discussed or 
or examined. And so that's really where we see the value in folklore and in supernatural folklore in particular. Music in this piece comes from Blue Dot Sessions. For American Student Radio, I'm Rick Brewer. Thank you, Rick, for that story. So those were our dear campus ghosts, very local to us, but spookiness can nest itself in objects, too. Producer Sheila Ragavendran's mom has a spooky story of her own. So Choti Mama, that's my brother, asked me to get a pair of anklets. We call them Geji. I went to India, shopped around and bought it, and I gave it to him. He got that for his good friend, that's what he said. So I don't know why he didn't give it to her. Um, I have no idea, you know, what happened. But later on, I found out that that friend that he was going to give it to her, she passed away. After a couple of years, Choti Mama passed away. And when we were uh, cleaning his apartment, I got those geji. And I, um, I had them uh, in a crystal. It, it's a, like a crystal uh, jar with a lid. Um, so I put them in, in there and I left it uh, in a kitchen cabinet and I shut the door. So Bina was maybe, say, a year and a half or so. She got into this habit of drinking milk in the middle of the night. So this one night when we went to the kitchen and I got the milk and I was you know, heating it up. And when I walked back to give it to her, I found the anklets right in the middle of the uh, kitchen. And it was odd. It was like 1.30. I was tired too. I didn't put, I don't know, how did this come down here? So I thought maybe your daddy must have accidentally got something out. So it came, you know, it it fell or something. So next day, I asked your daddy, um, did you happen to, you know, drop the anklets? And he said, no. And the weird thing is, you know, it's a glass jar. It's a crystal glass jar. We didn't hear any noise. And anklets also, like, they make they make sound, right? They are, uh, you know, made out of uh, silver, sterling silver and they had little like three um like balls that would jingle when you walk we didn't hear anything but also i used to hear some footsteps like um when i'm all by myself in the house and everyone has their distinct footsteps right and i would hear um choti mama's footsteps I don't know. It was a, it was a strange feeling after that. The music in that piece was by Transient. Thank you to Sheila and her mom for that story. All these ghost stories say a lot about how much we think about how we're going to die. But how often do we consider what we want done with our bodies? Holly Lemna asked that very question. 
So, given that this is the Halloween episode, the question is kind of a little morbid. Um, basically, how do you want your body prepared when you die? Well, I've thought about this a lot. I think that when I die, I'd like my body to first be cremated. And then I want the ashes to be split in half. And I want half of them to be made into a glass sculpture. And I want the other half to be put into a bioorn. Okay, so. I like the idea of being buried in, t- in, like, in terms of having a physical marking of my existence. And um, the bioorn becomes a tree, right? Yes, it does. Uh, what kind of tree do you want to be? I would either want to be a willow tree or a pine tree. I like the idea of my loved ones having a place to go, you know, to be with me, essentially. Um, But I also don't like the idea of my actual body, like, decomposing under the ground. So, ideally, I'd be cremated, and I'd have my ashes, like, scattered somewhere meaningful, but also buried, so that I could also have a tombstone so I can have the best of both worlds. I don't want anyone to have my ashes in an urn somewhere, because that freaks me out. I I don't want my ashes to be in anyone's possession. So, I'm Hindu, so I traditionally would get my body cremated, and then after it's cremated, my ashes would be sprinkled into a holy river, like the Ganga or the Yamuna. Um, I have no significant cultural background, so I would probably be cremated, and then I probably donate my organs to science. Nice. So, yeah. Wait, would you don- donate your organs first and then get cremated? Yes. Okay, I was just checking because <laughs> I was like, organs. what if you could, like, bring your organs back from the dead? Like, you could just, like, put them in, like, water for a little bit. And so, yeah, I'd probably, because I'm an organ donor, I would probably donate my organs first and then get cremated. Um, there's also a lot of other really cool ways to preserve yourself after you die. But I wouldn't want to do anything creepy, like be embalmed or have, like, a viewing that's... That's not something I think is cool. Like, I understand why other people do it, but for me, it's just low-key creepy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I definitely would donate organs and then, like, get low-key cremated. And then, or, you know, maybe eaten by vultures. It it depends. (laughs) I would want to be cremated and then my ashes to be sprinkled over Chipotle. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like the Chipotle, like a restaurant? Yes. Yes. Like, as, like, an offering to Chipotle or, like, revenge or, like, what's the deal with the, Ch- the Chipotle? I just really love Chipotle and I just want to bless their food. Do you, like, want to be in an urn? Um, I mean, if a Sofrida's burrito bowl counts as an urn, then yeah. That's fair. I want to be a Viking burial. That's, like, everything at once. It's a sky burial because you're out in the open. It's cremation because they set the boat on fire with arrows. And then it's a burial at sea because it's a boat. That's like all three. I want to have a Viking burial. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Holly Lumna. In the arms of the angel. (laughs) Not kids, Bob. That music comes from Kevin McLeod. Thank you, Holly, for the story. Our last piece is a linguistic tour of the commercial Halloween vernacular from Chitra Vedantam. This year, you might pick out the perfect pumpkin, scoop it out, carve a haunting face into it, and put a candle in it to light up your porch. It's jack-o'-lantern season. But who's Jack, and what does he have to do with lanterns? 
As a linguistics major, word origins have always fascinated me. Even without the crisp fall air and the colorful leaves, you would know that it's Halloween time by seeing the spooky words splashed across social media. So today, let's see if we can scare up the origins of some popular Halloween phrases, starting with jack-o'-lantern. Jack-o'-lantern was the name given to 17th century English watchmen who carried lanterns. It was also used to describe strange lights that flickered over bogs, which people thought were fairies or ghosts. Scientists now think they're probably caused by swamp gases or bioluminescence, but that's a lot less fun. In Ireland, they were named after a man named Stingy Jack. Stingy Jack was such a lowlife that Satan, the literal devil, was jealous. When Satan came to collect his soul, Jack managed to trick him into promising to never take his soul to Hades by trapping him in a tree. But Jack didn't really think this through. When he died, he found he couldn't enter heaven or hell. From that day on, Jack was doomed to wander the earth with only an ember inside a hollow gourd to light his way. This gave him a new name, Jack of the Lantern. So moral of the story, kids, don't try and trick the devil. Speaking of tricks, Halloween is also the time of year when little trick-or-treaters jump out and yell boo at strangers. The earliest recorded use of the word boo comes from 18th century Scottish writers, like Sir Walter Scott. He referenced the sound in his essays, Letters on Demonology and Witchcraft, which I'm sure is some great light reading for a long weekend. The combination of the consonant and vowel make it perfect to produce a loud and startling noise. But boo is not the universal scary noise. In France, ghosts say who instead of boo. I think it's beautiful how universal the need to scare people is. I love Halloween puns. There's so many good ones. Creep it real, if you got it, haunt it, ghoul friend. Although I must admit there are a few that I think are overplayed, and none more than spooktacular. Events billed as spooktaculars will be thrown from elementary schools to nightclubs. I always thought this word was some invention of the early 2000s, but according to the head of the U.S. dictionaries, evidence suggests the term dates back to 1897. That actually makes it older than the term trick-or-treat, which originated in 1927. It was first reported in a 119-year-old Christian Observer article that describes a Halloween party where people were blindfolded and made to touch things that felt like eels or snakes or hands. They were actually common household items like sausage links and ham bones, but they didn't know that. The article called the event Spooktacular. It's pretty odd to think that a Franken-word like spooktacular, used in cheesy advertisements, originated before trick-or-treat, just goes to show that language is as unpredictable as humans. And what's spookier than that? From ASR, I'm Chitra Vedanta. Thank you, Chitra, for that piece and for those puns. And that's the end of ASR's Spooky Halloween special. Thank you for joining us this ghostly half hour. And tune in next Sunday at noon to hear Mackenzie Delaney and Anna Barnett take you through the unexplained UFOs, nervous compulsions, and memes galore. I'm Catherine De La Rosa from WIUX in Bloomington in the slightly haunted Franklin Hall. This has been American Student Radio. Happy Halloween, y'all. Thank you for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students at Indiana University Bloomington. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at ASR Voice. 
We broadcast new episodes every Sunday at noon on WIUX and stream on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash American-student-radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.